Hi, this is Richard Hanania with the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Eric Kaufman once again. Eric, how are you? Good, Richard. How about you? Uh, I'm doing fine. I, I can't complain. Uh, so we had you on a, f- a few weeks ago. We were talking about your uh, uh, big report on um, campus discrimination, discrimination against conservatives, discrimination against gender critical scholars. And I wanted to have you back here because um, since that time, you've wrote a few op-eds in uh, uh, City Journal, was it? Uh, yeah. Written in Colette, you've written on Newsweek, but I think City Journal focused on the policy implications. And I, you know, I like the I like the fact that we're thinking along those lines uh, because you know there's no shortage of diagnosing the problem um, with regards to cancel culture, with regards to universities. I mean, there's a there's an entire business model just based on critiquing these things, uh, and there's much less thought about what to do with it, and you know what to do about it. And me and you don't have you know the same views, and that'll and that'll come out. But it's important to think about you know, what, if anything, people should do. And if people shouldn't do anything, I don't think just complaining about it all day is, uh, you know, is useful. Um, so I think we should start by talking about what happened in the UK. Uh, so the UK actually passed, it wasn't legislation, right? It was, a, was it, did it go through parliament? No, that's um, in the works. And I would expect, that is the, I would expect success. It's just a question of, will there be any watering down of the bill in the through lo- aggressive lobbying by the university sector in the House of Lords, but I'm hopeful that that's not going to have that much impact, and that we're going to get most of it through pretty much as is. Uh, so, like, so it's at the like the proposal stage. Um, well, it's a policy. Yeah, it's at the proposal stage, and then it just has to be. Uh, it just has to go through. But of course, in Britain, the uh, the executive, more, it's not like the U.S. where the president essentially has very little power, especially in a divided Congress, uh, and even with a slight majority of it. It's, it's different. Here, the executive has more or less largely untrammeled power. Yeah. Well, I mean, here on paper, the president doesn't have a lot of power to uh, to set the rules. Uh, but um, when you give them the power to interpret and enforce the law, in practice, that ends up being a lot of power, especially in, since the U.S. or Congress is often deadlocked on important issues. So on um, things like uh, Title IX, um, things like affirmative action, uh, that's all statutory interpretation. Congress is not passing new laws with every administration, but every administration is doing things differently. So people have heard about the Title IX kangaroo courts when um, when uh, young men are accused of rape, and then you know they have a presumption that they're guilty. And uh, I don't know if that's actually the right, story, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, the, the standards of evidence are low. <laughs> um, they're not allowed to really uh, mount a vigorous defense, and that changes by administration. So that uh, that uh, came into force really under Obama. It was rolled back a bit under, it was rolled back, you know, in, in uh, uh, I think, you know, completely or to a great extent possible under Trump and Biden appears to be moving back towards that. So when things happen in the U.S., it's usually just the executive branch. Uh, but yeah, you're in a country where people, you know, governments pass laws. <laughs> and so it looks yes. like that's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, unless there's a coalition government where you have to negotiate with your partner, but that's not usual in Britain. And um so there and now with, with Tories have a pretty com- comfortable majority. Okay. And so what are, and so assuming this passes, uh, what are the, what are the details? Well, yeah, and I, I should, by the way, say that five of the seven recommendations were, were those that we put forward in our 2020 policy exchange, which is the forerunner to, to the CSPI report, which, uh-huh. which just br- branched it out to the North America as well. But um, 
And yeah, so what, what are these proposals about? Okay, so the main thing is applying existing law proactively. And, and maybe that's that's got a little bit of a resonance with the US case with executive orders, but essentially the way that, that we envisioned it is it's not enough to place the onus on the accused to get organized, get funded and sue or appeal or do whatever you have to do go through the tribunal system within your university and eventually come out of it and eventually whatever. Uh, by that time, uh, and there's a good article, uh, well, Brian Kaplan has a, a blog and there's a, a University of Texas professor who said, the punishment is the process. That basically, if you have to go through that kind of a, a punishment, even if you're exonerated at the end, which typically you will be, we're not it doesn't talking matter. About, we're, not, we're not talking about sexual assault, are we? we, were, we were no, just no, 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 not that, but just, Straightforward uh, speech policing by a Twitter mob, let's say, and and then a complaint or something. Um, Even if it's frivolous, it it all gets investigated. You are then put under a cloud and you you have all of the anxiety and all of the expense and whatever. Um, And so it doesn't really matter if the law is on your side. And this is where, uh, you know, just having the Free Speech Union and FIRE and, and Heterodox Academy and these other groups backing you up is not really going to be enough because it doesn't deal with the chilling effect of self-censoring. So the idea here is that what we would create is, well, what is going to be created is something called the Academic Freedom Champion, which is like an office uh, in the sectoral regulator called the, so there's something called the Office for Students, which is like the, uh, that regulates the education sector, including universities. On that office for students will sit a, a ombudsman or an individual who will have a staff and whose job will be to uphold academic freedom proactively, which means that they are now going to be issuing requests to universities. You know, what are your policies on X, Y, Z? Let's have a look at them to make sure they're compliant. Uh, any non-compliant policies are going to have to be rewritten. And that's sort of number one, and that's actually quite important because a lot of these internal disciplinary tribunals. And, and we saw in my CSPI report in the US, one in three grad students and, and academics on the right have been either threatened with um, disciplinary action or discipline. So that's a huge chill that, that can be exercised. Uh, this process, what that does is it oversees all of that and, and also is complaint driven. So there's whistleblower um, uh, channels coming from people who, who are in universities. So all of this is meant to uh, more or less allow this office to more or less lean on universities and, and prevent them from breaking the law. That is essentially job one, prevent them from abridging academic freedom. Um, what else does the, uh, the legislation do? It would, well, it would tweak some legislative things, make it clear that academic freedom takes precedence over duties around harassment and, and, and uh, bringing the university into disrepute and all these other things, I mean, unless it is legal definitions of harassment, those would fall lower on the spectrum and therefore they could not be used to trump uh, people's academic freedom rights. So you're actually making it clear in law also that uh, student unions, which are the center, the hotbed of, of woke activism in Britain, those have, have been able to operate outside these, these strictures of academic freedom because they pretended that they are in some way independent organizations when in fact they're part of the university, they're funded by the university and, and, and so on by people's fees. So they are now going to be brought under the same obligations to uphold academic freedom as the rest of the university. That's going to make a big impact. 
Um, what else are we going to do? In addition, um, there are going to be uh, political discrimination as part of, of, of this. So that is seen also as an abridgment of academic freedom. Uh, and, and the creation then of an appeals process around your university will give you academics and students just a lot more power and a lot more comfort, I think. And that's part of what this is about is removing some of the chilling that takes place when you just don't know what your rights are. Uh, you don't know what the rules are. Universities can more or less do what they like, haul you in when they want. The aim would ultimately be to, to, to essentially um, scale back all of the disciplinary apparatus around speech to that which the law um, controls. So, so not allowing universities to make their own laws and judgments. And so this is gonna have huge ramifications across the sector. And what is the uh, what is the current status quo? What what are the uh, procedures within the universities for dealing with speech as is? Well, essentially, universities are allowed to do what they want. They they you know you're very much down to the whim of who you get, and very often the um, equality diversity side of things, the work and study policy, the university reputation policy, all of those things tend to trump the academic freedom of of whoever is the accused. And you're hauled through multiple tribunals. I've been through this process on, on a few occasions. Um, you know, so that whole apparatus serves to more or less chill those who would go near to challenging dogma on the hot button issues. Uh, anything that a Twitter mob would get worked up about. Now, the people who get it the worst are, of course, the gender critical feminists. Uh, they get it the worst. But uh, you know, conservatives in general, in our report, we saw that you know one in two. Um, right-leaning social science and humanities scholars report, um, you know, report self-censorship and report uh, a hostile climate. Um, and so, so what I would say is that there is a broader problem of academic freedom, but it's heavily concentrated amongst political minorities. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that you had experience with the disciplinary apparatus at the university before. Can you can you talk about that? I mean, are you allowed to talk? Well, about I mean, I, I can't talk about it in fine detail, other than it it's the it follows the script, which is um, Twitter mob bombard the university feed, generate a complaint, then somebody some radicals inside the university make a formal complaint, citing the Twitter mob and what they screenshotted or did and then you go into the tribunal and you know it's that sort of a a thing and you know it works itself through and you know again what are they accusing you of when you're in front of the tribunal what do they say nothing actually like? happens but but it's sort of like again the, the the this professor at the university of texas made it made a really good point yeah, that, of course know, yeah the process is the punishment so it's all about receiving that email from the superior you know and and, and this is sort of the the tactic um and of course, and I guess the issue also is there's a lot of power at the lower levels in this system uh, for people who, who are essentially quite, what's the word, quite politically biased and, and often nakedly so, ridiculously so. It's only when you get to the very top of the university that lawyers get involved, people who are actually somewhat grounded in the real world. Um, but, but essentially, you can go quite a while with pretty relatively unbalanced and, and completely biased individuals until you hit some kind of rationality. Uh, and that was kind of my experience. Um, and of course, there's a lot of, you know, reputation of the university and, and crisis management is sort of uppermost uh, and not 
you know, certainly academic freedom is, is barely ever mentioned, uh, and it's certainly given pretty short shrift. And so, when you're when you're accused, um, that ha- that has to come from within the university, but the but it's often the the catalyst is often a Twitter mob. Is that how it works? Well, I, I it can come from outside the university. That can generate, you know, that can generate a talking to, and. I, I think you can generate complaints. Actually, I think you can put in complaints from outside the university. Yes, which yeah. and they which they investigate. Yeah. So so it's all this sort of you know nobody wants to be under that cloud. Or you get you know you might get agitators who who might want to disrupt. Uh, I don't know a class you're doing, or perhaps a recruitment event, or you know they can make your life pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and so it's both inside and outside the university, but they're all tied together. It's a small, tight network. Again, the ones who get it the worst are the gender critical feminists because there's a very, very organized lobby that is very well connected, can really put the pressure on uh, very effectively. I'm not claiming I'm getting it anything like that, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying that the knowledge that one of these unpleasant things can occur acts to magnify the chill effects. But I still don't think this is the major issue. I think political discrimination is the bigger issue, but uh, for more for more academics. Yeah, um, yeah, we could, let's yeah let's stay on uh, speech mm-hmm. for a moment, and then we can get to uh, right. political discrimination. Um, do you? I mean, what do you? You say this? I think about my time when I was um, a PhD student and then a, a postdoc, <clears throat> and the. Um, you know, I got the impression from the university, and this is not limited to speech or, or uh, issues about you know political discrimination. I always got the impression that these people love bureaucracy, um, and they really have a passion for it. So you take something that has no um, connection to uh, you know free speech or political bias. Uh, when you want to do um, a survey, if you just want to ask people something, there is no organization in the world that puts more restrictions on you than a university. If you're working for like the New York Times, you can run a poll where you can just call anyone you want, talk to anyone you want and ask them who, you know, who did you vote for president or who are you going to vote for this or what do you think of that? Um, for any corporation, there's no regulation. You can, you can be a private researcher, you can do whatever. But if you're affiliated with the university, there's something called the IRB. Um, and that means you have to go through a days long process. And this is not for like, you know, doing human experimentation. Like this is not for uh, brain surgery. It's like, if you just want to do like a poll, a poll that Pew research would do, or any other group would do, you have to go through this and they put you through training. And the training is talking about like the Tuskegee, uh, the Tuskegee experiment. And they're going into like the Holocaust and it's very, you know, it's just very strange stuff. And they put you through this and there's not like an ideological, like this is a discrimination against conservatives or something like that. Um, And nobody forced this on them. It just seems that the university has become a place um, where risk averse uh, we're risk averse people who don't understand cost benefit analysis, who just love pa- uh, shoveling around paper, uh, paperwork and bureaucracy. This is just where they find themselves. And no. like, yeah, yeah. It's just sort of a, a byproduct of that. Does that make sense to you? It does totally make sense. And I'm thinking, but I, I think, you know, the university administration is always trying to, to push worst case scenarios and, and caution, caution, caution. I mean, I do think the academics will push back in committee a little bit, you know, on red tape and form filling and, and, and too much. Well, it depends. Now, but then on the other hand, you get, I do think there is an ideological component to, for example, ethics committees. You will get fundamentalists who 
uh, who, who take this extremely sort of touchy-feely approach to research subjects, you know, you always have to obtain consent. And uh, the psychology department had a big row with the, the research committee, which was trying to, to get them to, to get all their respondents to give their consent on, on experiments where they're being manipulated. But, but that's the yeah. point of yeah. psychology. I mean, you're not going to do psychology without, uh, you know, manipulation and deception. And yet this is somehow seen as an ethics violation. I mean, these people really, most of them haven't done any proper research in their lives, but they get a hold of a position on the ethics committee and, the, and they can more or less abuse that power. And also, by the way, the ethics committees can serve as uh, entry points for agitators, for example, who want to try and derail people's research by filing a complaint. They can try and tie you up. And those are very often ideological. And I've heard, of, I've heard from a number of people uh, and, and even the odd comment in the survey turned up that, that the, the ethics committee is a pressure point that can be used to, uh, for political discrimination to block. Oh, un unquestionably, yeah. but the, the, just the setup of an ethics committee to do simple survey work, that originally is not ideological. Um, or it's, it's not ideological in the sense of right. Well, safetyism, you could say safetyism is part of a kind of concept creep, which is part of a sort of therapeutic well, you know what? I don't, I don't like that say, safetyism because this is a Jonathan Haidt uh, argument because I was at the University of Chicago Law School, which is in the middle of a very crime, uh, 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 crime prone neighborhood. And every uh, few years or so, somebody would get shot um, right outside the university, just walking a, you know, a block or so outside, outside of the university. And you couldn't walk, you couldn't walk, uh, you know, in broad daylight, like three blocks uh, down south of the University of Chicago Law School. You, the law school is at the ed, ed, edge of the university. So the university itself has its own private security. And when people would get, uh, you know, when people would get, you know, shot or mugged, there was no demand for more safety. I mean, people just sort of brush that off. And I was thinking, wait a minute, if, 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 if this ideology is about safety and people, you know, just really like being afraid of risk and <laughs> having these fears, I think that that would create a bigger reaction, but it tends not to. Um, yeah, well, it's it depends, though. You look at the anything around mental health and around, you know, it's, it's, but it has to be ideological. It has to be a crime by like a police officer. It has to be a racist. Right. right. It's like so very narrowly constrained by ideological. Well, I was going to say that that the 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 racial dimension to what you're talking about might have constrained, you know, whereas if it was sort of let's say white rednecks out in in the South Side, you know, uh, doing oh, this, it would be yeah, they would care. Yeah, you yeah. might get a different uh, approach, right? Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> right. So you do, I mean, you do have this. Yeah, you do have the safety. I guess I, I guess I was disagreeing with you when I was saying it's not safetyism, but originally I was saying it was safetyism because the um, just setting up the IRB the way it's set up is itself a um, uh, you know, as itself, uh, you know, divorced from sort of this, these racial concerns or, you know, these other yeah, yeah, that's political, right. yeah. political things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and so, uh, yeah, before we, uh, yeah, before we get to the sort of the, um, uh, more, uh, structural things about political discrimination, I just, I'm just curious, what exactly is the, um, so you talked about how the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the disciplinary apparatus works, um, right now. So the change specifically to that would be, would be what? Well, you would have um, somebody that you could appeal to around your university, uh, somebody who would then could ask, you know, respond very quickly and ask, phone up the university and say, what's this? And they would have to have an answer. And if it was, and if they also, the other thing is, if they were violating and consistently pushing the envelope and being slapped down, they would be liable for fines. So the, the, oh, wow. the is, there's also fines yeah. that will be applied essentially to allow 
you know, the OFS and, and the free speech champion to, to curb behavior. So the universities are not actually, they're going to actually have to not make these mistakes. It's not enough to simply row back because what they do now, the activists can say, well, well, we'll throw anything we want at anybody without with impunity. And, oh, if they happen to, to, to snake their way out of it, um, okay, we'll just go after them again and again and again. What this does is it sort of may, says, well, no, you can't do that or you're going to get fined. So if you have a very lax approach to discipline, to, 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 if you allow numerous charges to go through, uh, then you're going to be liable to discipline. And similarly, if you're allowing a lot of no platforming to happen or, or if you're violating academic freedom in other ways, uh, and, and the actually the uh, the white paper, the policy paper, makes it very clear. Emotional safety is not a rationale yeah. okay. for curbing speech. So it's very clear, but it even cites job and heights. So it's very clear that this is they're serious, and they're not going to let universities off the hook this time. What, what, is left as a, what is left as a justification for uh, stifling speech? What, what is that? What is typically well, well? I mean, you said you said it doesn't allow emotional safety. So, what is still going to be allowed as as a justification for stifling speech? Um, well, not basically. It's going to be speech within the law, um, Richard. I don't think they're going to be allowed to set their own law. They're going to have to actually uh, prioritize academic freedom over over almost basically over everything else except where the law allows otherwise. So, I they're not going to be allowed to to use reputational damage or broad definitions of harassment based on subjective death, none of that will fly. They're basically going to have to um, say no to the activism. I mean, the way this should be designed in such a way that there will be no recourse for the university other than to say no to the activists. The other thing they have to do is they don't, they're obligated not just to defend, but to promote actively academic freedom. Now, the exact shape of what that means is going to be worked out by the office holder, the the academic freedom champion. Now, of course, the key to this whole thing is also who gets appointed into these positions, um, which are often political appointees, and it's very much down to that individual as to what happens. And and I think they're going to get quite an activist individual who will be quite strong on this stuff. And now, of course, you might say, well, if the Labour Party ever gets in, which is not looking particularly likely for a while, but let's say they do get in occasionally, um, they will then have the power. What they've done in the past is they've appointed their own people. And, and there are a lot more people who are left-leaning to appoint to these boards than who are right-leaning. To get the right-leaning ones in, you really got to plumb and mine your networks and be very strategic about it and work hard. There's a, there's a scarcity of such people, but you really need those people because the the policy is the people. I think there's some uh, saying like that, that you have to get your people in yeah. and they are the ones who have to run this policy. Because if you leave it up to whoever just happens to be, to be around or who's wishy-washy, they'll just bend to the universities. Yeah, I think personnel is policy is, is how we say it, at least on, on this side of the pond. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I yeah, I don't imagine it has to be a political appointee. Of course, if the if the uh, government changes, yeah, that that makes sense. That there's you know you probably go back to more closer to the old system. But you are you know you are creating norms, and if conservatives, I guess, have have power fifty percent of the time on average, um, you know, that's <laughs> it's higher than that here. Uh, <laughs> labor hasn't been in very often historically. Yeah, that, that's that's true. So yeah, that, that's a positive. So so I, mean, I like that. The baseline is the the university cannot be more illiberal than society, which you would hope would be the case. And we have, you know, I think I, I feel obliged to say that 
uh, Great Britain doesn't have a um, First Amendment like the U.S. does, so they do have hate speech. So you would be able to discipline someone from hate speech because that would be consistent with the law. Is that right? I mean, there isn't. My understanding is they do have it, but it's not particularly restrictive. It's pretty tough to prove it. I mean, I think you've got to really be doing something very obviously like yelling racial hate. slur. Like I've, I've I seen don't it. even know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think even yelling a racial slur at some. I think you have to commit some offense that's real, like like physical or something. And maybe you're yelling a racial slur or something. I mean, maybe that is. I, I can't say I'm up on a hundred percent with the laws. Scotland, uh, however, has just brought in a law which is much more draconian on on this stuff. Um, and so that's much more restrictive, but it only applies in Scotland. And I'm not 100% sure how that sits with regard to the UK. Could the high court in the UK strike down some of its provisions? I would have thought so, but I don't know what the, the kind of federalism is like here in terms of what rights they have. Typically, it's pretty centralized, not like in the US. It's typically more centralized here than federalized. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I, expert. <laughs> yeah. So I think I've seen, I mean, I think I've seen individual cases of the UK where people were punished for speech. I, I, I think there was a, a lady on a bus who just started yelling about Muslim uh, Muslims a while ago, and there was a video of it. And I think you know, she got arrested. She didn't like assault anybody. Um, and I don't know if that's a common thing or how often that happens, but I've seen individual news stories mm-hmm. and stuff like that happens, but it doesn't sound like it's, it doesn't sound like they go after you if your research shows the wrong results. So, you know, can, no, no. <laughs> Canada investigated a guy named uh, J. Philip uh, Rushton. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. So he he uh, did stuff on uh, bi- biological racial differences, and he was investigated, but then he didn't get punished. The Canadian government, like the actual province of Canada, whichever province he was in, investigated him, and then they said it's okay. So it seems like UK is even more liberal than that. You, you wouldn't even have like a government investigation. Yeah, I think Canada is the worst of the Anglo-Sphere countries because it has something called the, uh, provincial human rights commissions, which are mm-hmm. now there was some. Uh, reform of these things, but these are basically kangaroo courts that can haul you in and, you know, you have to pay your own, you have to turn up. Yeah, it, it's quite, um, it's it's much more Orwellian. Uh, yeah. So of the three, it's the worst. Yeah, I've um, heard, uh, yeah, there's yeah. American pundits who are known in the U.S. who've had trouble with the Canadian, um, with the Canadian system. I think Mark Stein, maybe Katie Hopkins, uh, maybe people, I think people like that, people who sort of uh, write in Canada and write right. in the U.S. will get in trouble for Canada. And that'd be, you know, martyrs of the U.S. Like we're too okay. completely. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I, I haven't seen it, but the Canadian human rights uh, commissions are atrocious. Those are, uh, you know, but there's nothing like that that I'm aware of here in Britain. Although there are other things called non-crime hate incidents, which are currently the focus of the free speech unions battling to have those uh, removed. So, so, so there's a battle that's going to the to the probably the equivalent of the Supreme Court here that will try and essentially remove these sorts of because what the police can somehow note they can note on your file that you've committed one of these non-crime hate <laughs> incidents, and if someone does a a, a, a a check, if you want to coach kids sports or something, they have to do these. Uh, checks on your really and they'll stop you from coaching kids, kids and that'll stop you yeah so so that there is this so even though they regulate the school so, yeah the, the school will go to the police and the police will say this guy is racist don't let him be the I, softball I, coach I, I think they can, yeah when they run the check that something will turn up <laughs> so, so this is the current uh current battle over here on that on that front so there's apparently been 180,000 non-crime hate incidents that have been logged 
So yeah, there is a battle to get rid of that, which I hope will succeed soon. And yeah. I, it'll go to the highest court. It's all about how much autonomy these institutions, and this is again, getting to this wider point around how much autonomy you're allowing these institutions to have. The police, can they just log these incidents and claim that it's part of their procedure and they need to do it in case the person commits a crime again, it's useful back. I mean, but there's other ways of doing this. You can log it, but but make it private so it's not actually able to be released to anybody. Uh, I would have thought that would be a kind of useful compromise. But anyway, um, that's one of these battles that the Free Speech Union is engaged in. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, if the police want to keep a file on you in the United States, I don't think there's any restrictions. Like, they're not required to, you know, uh, check if you're a racist. But there are things like gang databases where people haven't committed crime, people think they're gangs and it gets challenged. Like people will say it's racist because, you know, there's not enough white people in these gang databases. Right. Um, I don't think schools use them or I don't think they share them with other institutions. So that's a difference. And, you know, maybe in some place like San Francisco, maybe they are keeping, you know, track of racists or whatever, but it wouldn't be a normal thing for a, for a police department to do in the U S well, as long as it can't be accessed by a member of the public, like it's one thing if if the police access it themselves and it remains private, yeah. And I guess you could say it doesn't affect you, but um, anyway. So, so, but but um, no. So, just getting back to the to the uh, to the legislation. I mean, the idea is that you're creating a a set of duties and you're waiting in the law. It's all about the words that are used. You know, um, duty to a statutory duty versus, and then there's another legal term for, for a duty, which is weaker. So the Equalities Act, which has was brought in in 2010, and which kind of puts a, a duty on um, institutions to more or less promote equality of outcome between racial groups, I mean, and gender groups. And that is essentially the wording of this bill. So that's probably going to need reform uh, because it's very, very, um, prescriptive right now. Um, and, and it's, of course, it's only applied to minority groups and not to say white working class boys who are the, the worst performing group in, in Britain, uh, in the school system. Uh, but, but either way, um, this duty is sometimes hauled out when some of its nebulous loose language is sometimes used as a justification for clamping down on, on freedom of speech as being distressing to groups and not promoting uh, good relations among groups. And so, so essentially a lot of this is clarifying how these different duties interact and what takes priority when there's a clash. I mean, that is what's been left loose. If you leave it loose, the institutions will always interpret against free speech. So you have to nail it down in law in such a way that institutions have no wiggle room at all. And then you have to audit them to make sure they're upholding that. And if they aren't, they're fined so that they do. There's really no other way because part of the problem here is that the institutions are mainly controlled by uh, progressive forces, either because they have the numbers and dominate uh, demographically or because they're able to, to, to wield the power of taboos. Uh, and so no one wants to speak up or they'd be seen as a kind of a, a sexist or a transphobe or a racist or whatever. Um, so they, the activists can leverage these taboos as well as a general climate, certainly in academia, where you've got a progressive majority of, you know, it may be 60, 70 percent, depending on the jurisdiction. And that weakens the resistance to uh, things that violate academic freedom. So you've got a larger pool of activists and a, and a weaker uh, degree of resistance to illiberal uh, measures. And so that combination just means these institutions are ripe for uh, 
the takeover by uh, the kind of left modernist equity diversity agenda, um, going way beyond anything that makes any kind of, uh, of sense from an evidence-based perspective. Um, and so the initiative is being driven, the politics, the culture war is being driven from the, the, this middle layer of institutions. And the only check on that is the state, as far as I'm concerned, the only actual way that you can check their power is democratically elected governments going in there and auditing and regulating and breathing down their necks. There's no other way to check them because they're completely undemocratic institutions. So in almost all cases, and, and therefore that's partly why I very, very much recommend an activist uh, government role for regulation. Now, of course, if, you're, if, if the left-wing party comes into power, they're going to say suddenly, okay, we're not doing anything anymore. We're either rolling back what the other guys did or just go to it. They don't have to do anything. This is the point. Whenever the left says the right is politicizing the culture war, well, they have to because the left is, is politicizing, politicizing the culture war through these institutions. Uh, and so left-wing parties don't have to politicize the culture war because it's already being done on their behalf by foot soldiers in these institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think this is our, we have a, a little bit of a, a difference here. Um, the, you know, um, the, so I mean, maybe we should, you know, as a starting off point, you tell me, you know, you, we talked about speech. Um, what is there specifically on political discrimination in the UK bill or the proposed bill? Mm. It's mentioned as 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 one. I mean, this this is of course the final wording has yet to crystallize, but it's mentioned as as um, something that you can appeal against and that that is not. So, m the hope is that once this uh, academic freedom champion is in place, they will then start flushing out what that means. And I what I obviously we don't yet know exactly what the shape of that will look like, but that would include, for example, I I think for example there should be a standard procedure whereby it should be made very clear before any hiring or, or promotion or, or anything takes place, that people understand that they are not allowed legally to politically discriminate. And just to make that clear, because as we saw in my report, you know, 40% of North American, US and Canadian faculty more or less would discriminate against a known Trump supporter. Um, and, and so it's pervasive. And we've seen this in, in paper after paper, starting with the Inbar and Lammers 2012 study on uh, refereeing and grant bids. And, and so, so the study after study is more or less showed something in the range of, you know, between 15 and 45% discrimination. So we know it's going on pervasively, but there's not a word about it because in a sense, the universities are just leaning into this discrimination. They're not actually checking it in any way. So I think, I mean, I think one reason I'm, uncomfortable reforming the universities is because I, I guess, I, I guess if, if they're an uncomfortable place for conservatives, I tend to think not going into a university career is tends to be the right decision for most people. So I think that they're, if they're uh, uh, drawn away from that, I, I sort of see them as lucky. So, I mean, I'll tell you my personal experience. I had, uh, you know, of course I got a PhD. I uh, did a postdoc and like, you know, there was, you know, of course, political, you know, there, you know, but my politics are not, you know, standard liberal. So of course, um, you know, that, that, that created <laughs> tensions with people and, you know, I didn't have like a lot of good friends among people who were like in my graduate program and stuff like that. So that, that, that was there and that's fine. But the main reason I didn't want to continue as academic in academia was because I thought I came to the conclusion that it was a terrible way to, 
to disseminate, to produce and disseminate knowledge. That when I was writing a paper, um, I was spending more time on citations and formatting and um, just uh, dressing it up in a way that was appropriate for the field. And then waiting, you know, two, three years for it to appear in publication. I have a paper right now that's going to come out in a peer-reviewed journal soon. And, you know, it's something like, it was done like nine months ago. And since that time, I've written report after report, op-ed versus op-ed, and I've been communicating with the rest of the world. And people have seen my work and my ideas. And this thing, which I think is important and, you know, needs to be out there, is who knows how much longer it'll be there. Might be, might be another, you know, a year or so. Um, It's really, really ridiculous. And, and so, you know, I have intellectual interests and I just decided that, you know, the university was, was not for me. I, I, I do what I do now. I, I started CSPI and I, um, I work for uh, think tank defense priorities. And there, there are actually a lot of opportunities like that out there. Now that's, and then you also have to look at the, um, at the personal level, the training process to become a professor. You know, what kind of thing is this where we, you go four years to college, um, you go, you know, uh, six, seven years of the PhD program, and then you start post. You start moving around postdoc to postdoc. You know uh, when you're 31. You know, right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe when you're 38, you can get married. Maybe when you get 39. This was sort of a system. You know, I think it was a system probably designed for monks, uh, people who had no, you know, uh, desire to or, to reproduce. And <laughs> and and so and, and then, yeah, you're right that the thank studies have shown a lower birth rate amongst academics than than others. Yeah, um, yeah. Right. And so like we're we're putting this on regular men and, and women who have, you know, a biological clock that, that moves faster than men. And we just think this is, you know, we just think this is normal and okay. And I, I wonder, like, why, why shouldn't we just say to people, if you're a free thinker, you're going to be discriminated against in academia. Good, go do something else, because that's not the best life choice for you or for most people. Okay, so here's the problem with that. Um, the problem with that, I mean, in a nutshell, I'll, I'll say this. The problem with that is money. I mean, how many Richard Hananias are there? Uh, how many people, you know, I've worked in with think tanks. They are hustling for every penny. They are spending a lot of their time on chasing donors, on marketing themselves, and their people are constantly turning over. It's a real hustle because money is, is tight. And, and so it's very hard to actually make it it's much harder to make it in that world. And, and there are far fewer positions. You think of the fact that there are like a million people working in higher education in the US and 100,000 in Britain. Um, the, the resources that these sectors command, the amount of research that gets done, let's say progressive research, um, because a lot of your time is, is not taken up by, it depends on your institution, but Teaching and administration take up some of your time, but there's a lot of time that is open to you, especially if you're reasonably effective to do research. So most of the research, the books, the articles that are being done are being done by people who are employed in these institutions because they pay you a salary and they give you, give you a living. Whereas the independent people, it's tough to make it as a journalist. Can I just respond to that? I looked for, I, I was on the job market for a little while and I looked for uh, think tank posts and I looked for academic jobs and actually trying to find an academic job was much, much more difficult. Um, probably maybe because of my politics and my focus and, and all of that. Um, but anyone who's conservative or libertarian or free thinking is going to have a similar problem. There is tons and tons of money actually out there in think tank world. There's tons of rich people who are giving out money. It's often not used well. I mean, there's a lot of people making money on uh, uh, Substack, um, just going alone. So it's a struggle, yes. 
but also going to a university for seven years, making $25,000 a year, then having a postdoc to postdoc is also, is also a struggle. It's uh, tough to get a job. It's tough to get a job, but once you've got a job, yeah, you can have lifetime. It's a different ball game. So you haven't seen that side of things. And what I would say to you is once you're in the door, it's actually, I won't say a completely cushy number, but what I mean is if you compare it to the think tank world, those people are out having to chase, get donors to fund, which is not always easy. And donors will, maybe in the US, they're more generous, but from what I've seen, they are always chasing the money. They have to spend a lot of time doing things that are not related to research. Well, well, academics don't spend a lot of time doing things not related to research, I think. Sure, I think they do. They do their teaching, but I don't know. My impression in the think tank world is there's you, you can't get your teeth. You can get your teeth into things to some degree, but it's got to be short and snappy. You could never sit there and write a book for a year easily to have the time to actually get into something in real depth. Now that doesn't necessarily matter if you're doing reports, I guess, but but often those reports are driven by agendas that might include, you know, other the donor's agenda might be not your agenda and your research well, might not have. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's the same with reviewers. I would say it's the same with, you know, you just depend on which, which group you want to be sort of hostile to because a, a purely independent, um, you know, unless you're independently wealthy, a purely independent research program where you're not uh, dependent on the goodwill or good graces of anybody just, just as doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. I guess I, I, I think that a lot more kind of heterodox research would occur if those people could get jobs in universities. I mean, I, I think that if, since they are, I mean, and, and the think tank world is not for everybody because it's sort of got to be policy relevant all the time and 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 people are, are my impression is you get a lot of quite superficial stuff being generated um someone does it runs a few focus yeah. groups does because you, you're always in you your donors want to see impact 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 all the time so people are having to get oh set up an event with this minister and these journalists and do a little splash out and then do another you're always under pressure to do another splash out another splash out i think that's not always conducive to the kind of research that we also need, yeah. which is sort of longer term stuff. So, yeah. So you're, you're right. That, that's the think tank world. Think tank world is only one option. I mean, there are um, smart people who are not affiliated with universities who write really good deep books. Um, so Matt, like Matt Ridley, for example, I don't think, does he have a university affiliation? It's, it's a loose university affiliate. He's not like a tenure. Okay. I think he might be either independently wealthy or he was at, at a university or something. Yeah. If, uh, even if he's not independently wealthy, his books sell yeah. very well. And I'm sure he can. I'm sure. Sure. He can sure. Of course. So, uh, you know, between, yeah, I, you know, it, it's a safe path. I mean, that it's, oh, it's not a safe path because as you said, well, as soon as you get in the door, it's actually not that it's actually not that easy. I mean, the, even if you go to a good school, it's not that easy to find a place. And if you find a place, it's often not going to be not on the location that you want. I mean, you are a great scholar. And I think you would have, um, you. <laughs> you're a great scholar. I mean, you have a lot of citations. I mean, objectively, not that that's objective, but like just from the, from the uh, perspective of the field. And you, um, you wanted to stay in North America, didn't you? We can edit this out. If we yeah, can although, well, you don't want this personal stuff in there. Yeah, although I'd, I'd say, I mean, I'd say at the beginning, I kind of was just applying everywhere because it's so tough to get a job anywhere. Um, and I wound up here. I could have, yeah, I would have probably for, you know, my first choice might've been at a, at a top university in Canada or, or wherever, but it uh, didn't happen. But obviously I was quite, you know, okay. Once I got settled here, that was fine too. Um, yeah. But yeah, 
people move around. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but even like you, you have like, you have so many citations. You're probably one of the most, you know, you're the top one percentile of uh, probably 99th percentile of uh, uh, fame in academia, as far as success and citations measured conventionally of your books and your articles. And even for you, it's not like, you know, you could have gone anywhere and lived wherever you in any city you wanted. Right. 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 But then the think tank world, I mean, you know, there are only certain, there are think tanks are not everywhere. They're only in certain places like Washington. I, think, I mean, I think you can, I think if you set up a Substack and crowdfunded your books, I mean, I think you, I don't think you need university at this point. I think, I think you could, you could make it without it. Maybe. I don't know enough about these new models, but I, I'm always a bit suspicious that they're, that, you know, it could dry up immediately. And then what if you, no, that's not actually true, but I, I think, I just don't know, but I might, I can't help but feel there's a huge advantage if you control institutions that are huge endowments and, and you're getting all this, these, these fees coming in. And with all that money sloshing around, uh, you know, it just gives, if you control that whole apparatus, you've got a lot of power. I mean, even if we take away the indoctrination thing, which I don't really believe in, I think people's the studies show that people's views don't change much, uh, but it's, it's not even that. It's just, it is a sort of, credentialing mechanism. It's a status uh, mechanism. It's it's attached to a certain set of beliefs. I was just looking, by the way, little tidbit and something which I might be publishing soon. I was just looking at the FIRE 2020 Campus Expression Survey. 20,000 students, including about 3,000 in the Ivy League. And you look at the, you ask Ivy League female students, would you date a Trump supporter? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's got to be low. You, you know what the actual? I mean, okay, so but female Ivy League. Let me guess. Female Ivy League. Uh, would you date a, a Trump undergrad? supporter? Undergrads. What's that? Uh, undergrads. Undergrads. Yeah. Uh, I would say, yeah, 10, 15 percent, maybe. Yeah, it's it's twelve percent, but oh, wow, right it on, is right well, yeah, very good. <laughs> except if you just take so there's seven percent who who support Trump. Do they, so ask, 90, do they ask Republican, just Republican without Trump? No, they, um, yes, they do ask Republican without Trump. Um, I, but I could, I mean, it's going to be something like 10% or whatever. But but the but the point is, is that... Well, Trump was 12, the, I figure Republican must be much higher. Um, it's not going to be much higher. No, they didn't ask about Republican. They only asked about Trump supporter. Uh, um but then in the Pew asked about Clinton and Trump supporter and, and you know, the, the, the numbers for uh, Clinton supporters amongst 18 to 29 year olds with a degree, it was like 90% would go out with a Clinton uh-huh. supporter and it was like 17 or something would go out with a Trump supporter. I mean, uh-huh. of all respondents. Let me let me tell let me, for, for my listeners out there. I mean, I, I just want to say what women say in surveys and what women end up liking in the real world are often not the same thing. <laughs> Trump supporter listening to this, don't feel like you have to you know hide your views. Often that that'll be that's that's worse than being yourself. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, men, well, with men, there was also quite a lot of of, of discri- political discrimination. I think it was yeah, and I don't believe yeah. that. I don't believe men are going to discriminate against women based on politics. I just don't believe yeah, it. They I mean, might yeah, say it. Probably- yeah, in the breach, would they? Would this matter? I don't know, but I mean, it's it's certainly striking. I, I have to say, it's really striking. Um, but but this is just to say that this this phenomenon of political discrimination, I think, is 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 absolutely growing and is huge, and is emerging much you know more strongly amongst uh, generations entering the workforce and, and and structuring relationships in in a very important way. So I think anyway, I think that it's. 
that in itself, I think, is a big topic that needs a lot more attention than what it's getting. Simply because if you take the if you take the critical race theory definition of uh, racism, which is which is bogus, which is prejudice plus power. Okay, so even though even though prejudice plus power is nonsensical from a social science point of view, let's just say there is some some wisdom to it in this sense: is that if you're prejudiced and you have a lot of power, then that's really important in terms of shaping institutions. So if, for example, the major institutions have a very high degree of anti-conservative prejudice in them, um, the powerful institutions have a high degree of anti-conservative prejudice. That's kind of a major impact, I, I think, anyway, in the structuring of society. I think you're right, but I think there are, you know, so your, your argument is um, if, uh, you know, we have to care about the universities uh, because the universities have power and they have uh, cultural influence. And if they're, you know, if they're taken by extreme crazy ideologies, that's going to, that's going to harm the rest of society. I think that's true. Um, and I think there's, but there's, if there's a malignant force, you know, in, in the world, there's two approaches to it. You could think of it as sort of you're, you're dealing with a country that's aggressive or something like that. You can, um, you can try to overthrow that. You could try to overthrow the regime and replace it with a different regime um, or try to moderate the behavior of the regime. You could try to do something in, internal or you could try to isolate the regime. You could try to build a balanced state coalition. You, should, you could try to, you know, sanction them, make them weaker. Um, you know, I'm not making a commentary on international relations, but I'm making, I'm making an, 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 an analogy here. Um, how much power we want to give these institutions is to a great extent a choice. So in the 1950s, when, you know, a small percentage of the population had, had a college degree, I don't have it offhand. I, you know, I think it's probably less than 10%, five, 10%. Um, whatever the universities were like, and they weren't as bad um, back then, of course, as they are today. They just didn't have, they didn't have that much, uh, they didn't have as much power to shape people's ideas and to shape people's um, source of status when, when communities and churches and uh, civic institutions were stronger. You know, it's sort of like, a, it's a zero sum game. Everything, something has influence, something else doesn't have influence. When families, when communities had influence, you know, these, these institutions would be, um, you know, less, less important. And so, I would prefer, um, you know, I would prefer a model where the universities, this place where people go, uh, you know, it's, uh, where they don't really make or produce anything. You know, some do, like the sciences, they'll do experiments and they'll they'll produce things. But, you know, they're just people like us in the social sciences uh, who sit around, write, write papers, and then look at each other's papers. Don't run us down. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I believe in social science research. I mean, that's the whole reason I started CSBI. But the, the idea that... You know, I, I don't think I don't. I think there's more social science being done than people doing social science well or social science that's worth worth doing. But the idea that and that we should send our children there for four, uh, four years of their adult lives, where they otherwise would be making money and starting families and getting experience in the real world. You know, is this the model we want? Can't we can't we take away that power? Can't we? Um, uh, you know, you specifically in the um, City Journal piece. You attack, you know, proposals like from Australia, which would just um, uh, give less funding towards social science and humanities degrees. You said it's anti-intellectual. I would argue the biggest, most anti-intellectual thing is what social science and humanities is teaching today. So defunding them, I think, would be a pro-intellectual move. <laughs> what is wrong with that model? What is wrong with the containment just trying to, def it's not illiberal because you're just taking away or reducing government money. So what's wrong with that model? Well, I, okay, there are a number of things wrong with it, and I, and I guess this gets to perhaps what one of our differences, which is that I I don't really subscribe to the to what I would see as a more kind of 1980s libertarian view of 
creative destruction and that somehow if you withdraw funding uh, and, and you fund only the practical things, then somehow the other stuff will wither away. I, I just think that it's a bit like school choice, which I, I think is probably not a bad idea. But on the other hand, the, the private schools, the private universities, they're the worst. And actually, you're not actually going to solve this problem because really the key institutions are the top hundred or whatever that have the real influence in the society. Um, and I think they're going to trundle on just the way they've always trundled on. And so whether or not you've got the two-year colleges or not uh, teaching culture studies, whatever, I think that's not, not the big issue. The issue is going to be, so I actually think in, in contradistinction to that idea of defund and cut, and somehow we can cut our way out of this problem. I, I actually don't think that's um, going to get us where we where we need to go because the big problem we've got is cultural. It's not economic. The economic issue is is to my mind a very secondary issue. The big issue is um, how do you shift the culture? And I think the the way to do that, and, and increasingly, I think conservatives are going to actually have to try and reform these institutions which control huge resources, which control the credentialing and status systems in society. They're going to have to kind of enter that and get into the weeds very much. So I think all these sorts of things, you look at the Supreme Court as an example of where, you know, the the uh, one approach might have been to say, well, we're going to let whoever wants to uh, coming out of the law schools, turn up on the Supreme Court, uh, and, and we'll let them credential. And, and pretty soon the Supreme Court would simply have drifted in a progressive direction. And well, that's okay. We, we'll just um, we'll just choose some kind of alternative and we'll, we'll be influential over here. I, I think that ultimately the conservative side got involved in, in the Federalist Society and sort of selecting people that they wanted to promote up in the judicial system and got, inf- got involved in those fights at the level of doctrine. And I think that kind of a politicization of an institution has to take place across all of the institutions in society. The way the Supreme Court was engineered, you know, the way that that conservatives played the Supreme Court, they've got to play other institutions. And that means getting their people in, making that part of the political pitch to the voters, staying on top of the detail. Um, And that means, for example, in Britain, it might mean being on top of the British Broadcasting Court, the BBC, not just cutting it and letting it go private. I actually think you want to get in there, impose a fairness doctrine, impose something I call equivalence, which means anything that you do on equity and diversity on race and gender has to be done on uh, politics and ideology. Or you scale them both back, but you're not allowed to do one without the other. And if you were to impose that on institutions, you're now pressing these institutions constantly on how politically and ideologically representative they are. Um, I just think you could create a lot of pressure and you're also monitoring their output for its political slant all the time. You're on them all the time. The BBC is feeling that heat now. They're they're starting to cancel programs that they think are really annoying conservatives and are are maybe not generating a lot of other value for the corporation. So there's, there's important pressure on, on these institutions. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do is to create a, a different environment in, in these elite institutions that gets them to question what is effectively a politically prejudiced bubble that has been created through recruitment of like-minded people uh, and to try and shift those towards the center line. And I, and I think that kind of cultural activism, ha- the conservatives have to do it. They're not gonna be able to sit back and cut and just do simplistic things 
like it's the 1980s. And oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I agree with people who don't like the culture going to do cultural things. I would, if, if someone wanted to do that, I would say, uh, write a book, start a Substack, start a podcast, go become a Hollywood producer, you know, I, ideally, sell, you know, go out there and sell. A Hollywood something. producer. How are you ever going to get your movie? <laughs> I mean, there are, there are, there are Chris Nolan's. I mean, there are some very right wing, you know, there are more right wing, uh, Hollywood producers than there are, uh, sociology professors, you know, unquestionably. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll respond. You know, just because you know the market pressure does does you know it does have some some good. You can't just sell anything to and have hope to have box office success. It does have a disciplinary dis- a disciplining effect. You know, people want to see superheroes kill bad guys. They don't want to hear discursions on critical race theory. Although Hollywood is left wing, you know, there's obviously just like a big market for more conservative uh, kind of stuff. And some of it's you know like the militarist stuff, like you know American Sniper. Uh, but some of it is you know like anti crime. Um, you know, there's a lot of you know fascinating uh, stuff out there. But um, the you know what. what uh, uh, you know, just to stand up for the you know the market model a little bit. Um, one thing you said, oh, private schools are worse. You know, I think you, I think you had maybe you read uh, Barry Weiss's piece in um, in City Journal about that uh, that Los Angeles area private school that was uh, leaning heavily into critical race theory and all these things. I, that's not most uh, private schools. Most private schools are religious schools in the U.S. and they teach. A socially, you know, a pretty, uh, I, I would say probably more socially conservative message than the, um, uh, than the, than the public schools. There's always articles in, um, you know, CNN and these other, inc- about, you know, the, this racist or the sexist policy at the, at the private school. They're always trying to make the pu- private schools more like the public school. And the other thing about private schools is you're not going to get shot or stabbed in them too, because they're private. They're not government. They have some standards of, you know, discipline and who they let and all that stuff too. So there's a lot of good reasons to be, uh, uh, to, yeah, I mean, model over over the public but the the university is a little different so you say heart you know heart you, you uh, harvard is a private harvard and yale you know are are among are among the worst uh they are partly government money because of the loans and the subsidies but for putting that aside um you know, if, if, if the, the there's no you know these these uh, institutions have a reach. I think because there's a trickle down effect where if some of the prestigious thing starts at Harvard, it tends to come down to State U. Now, if you're you know if you're people living in um, Alabama or uh, Indiana or um, you know Nevada or something, you know you don't have to have your state dominated by the university town. Right. You can you if you if you defund this at the state level, these local activists just have less power. And it's something you just, you know, Yale and Harvard are still out there doing, you know, Yale and Harvard things. And they're, they're still putting uh, people into power. But there's a little bit of a decentralization of power where it's not like, you know, there's just uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the media. And well, we can't do anything about that. But just, that's a different issue. But then you have these universities and they're just, you know, sort of a top-down model and everything is just like, you know, whatever in every state, just the, you know, the most successful, the the government is made up of people who happen to go to that university system or went to Harvard and, and Yale. There's not enough spots of, you know, Harvard and Yale to, to, corrupt, all, <laughs> to corrupt all of society. <laughs> so yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's not a complete solution, but it's a decentralization model where I think that we're in a place now where, you know, I, I don't think to a great extent these, these institutions are redeemable. But I think, you know, there is a problem of, of oligopoly and monopoly. Even, you know, if you, if you think about the tech company issue, which is one of, let's say they uh, decide they're going to no platform people with conservative views on the trans issue and they put pressure on other tech corporations to do the same and then yeah, even I, 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 I treat every issue differently. I, I probably agree with you on, on the tech, uh, you know, I, I, I think yeah, it, no platform. But it's a, it's a, it's a version of something similar that you need to 
the only thing that can beat that is, is I think, you know, individual consumers can't necessarily beat that because they're trapped. They have to use Google or Facebook or whatever. The only, unless you want to maybe sacrifice multiple generations for 50 or 100 years, I think the only route into solving that problem is, is government regulation and that says, show us your algorithm, prove it's fair. Um, you know, that kind of thing where you're imposing a fairness doctrine. And, and that's sort of the approach, I think, that, and that requires getting into sentiment analysis and content and things, but I think that's all very doable now. I mean, it's, it's pretty doable to do sentiment analysis. Um, that kind of thing should be done. I really think there's no other way because the, these people do, they don't think they're being biased, but they are completely being biased, but they just think that's normal. And you actually have to show that and show them. And then sensible ones amongst them will see that actually, yes, we are actually being really quite biased here. So, but actually I was listening to uh, Chris Rufo on, um, you know, it is interesting to note um, what's occurred recently, say even in the US with you know, anything that's been, the only things that have really worked, I think, and, and made a measurable impact on the, on the sort of wokeness culture war front have been things that have come out of government like the reform of Title IX, like the critical race theory executive order, all too late, too little too late, but, or, the, or what the states are now doing with universities. The, and the point I think Rufo made in, on Andrew Doyle's podcast was to say, well, look, you know, there's almost nobody out there defending critical race theory. It's almost impossible to get um, people to debate. It's almost impossible to get them, you know, defended in the major newspapers even. I mean, yes, they might suck in some of these assumptions, but to explicitly defend Robin DiAngelo's work and write about it. I mean, it's quite clear that the, the enemies of political correctness and wokeness kind of own the argument, I think, uh, in, the, in the media. But it's one thing to own the argument on Substack and, and in the media. If the other people control the institutions, you have no power. You have very, very little. You might make a difference in 100 years. But the point Rufo was making is there has to be some strategy to enter into these institutions that control power and resources. And I just don't believe the laissez-faire approach is going to get us there. You, well, you say that, you know, government is, um, you know, I, I, you know, I like this debate because it's, it's, it's important and there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces to it. But you, you know, you said um, that the only reforms have come from, you know, government. That's sort of the only pushback to the left. Um, I think that every community that forms, you know, every religious community that forms is pushed back to the left. So that the fact that you have the Amish doubling their population every 10 years or so, and the fact that, you know, that was like libertarian arguments who, who won that, you know, homeschooling was all, you know, uh, illegal in a lot of places in the U.S. 40, 50 years ago. So you had to send your kids to the public schools and people fought for that. And now you could have communities like the Amish who have, you know, seven children each. That's not my ideal for all of society. But the fact that some community like that exists, there's some kind of, you know, diversity of lifestyle, I think is, is a beautiful thing. Uh, so you look something like the Mormon church and its power, power in Utah. Um, the fact that if you look at, you know, uh, poor people and you look at um, uh, rates of like drug abuse and, um, and illegitimacy and stuff like that, Utah is just an amazing outlier because there's a real religious community there compared to every other state's for poor people. And that's, and that's, and that's a victory. The fact that, you know, the, the, the fact that Brigham Young University, they have this institution out there. So it's, there's no one clean solution to, to society's problems. And I, I'm with you on a lot. I like, I like Chris Rufo. I like what he's doing. I want to, you know, I want to push back on this stuff. I guess what I, when, when I think about it, I think people like me and you who really, really dislike the, um, 
uh, the wokeness, the the elite the elite culture. Um, where should they focus their energy on if they're going to be politically active or socially active? And I would say. Yeah, you know, there's room for roof on, there's room for people doing that. And some people who are going to be in politics, you need somebody in politics, you know, they'll be doing stuff like that. I'd like to see a lot more focus on decentralizing power, um, getting people to form communities, um, things like that. And we do have models. It's not like it's impossible. It hasn't been done anywhere. Um, yeah, just, you know, any thoughts, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not as much of a decentralized, and, and maybe this gets what gets to our sort of philosophical basis. I'm, I'm less of a libertarian. I think, you know, I'm, I think it's right to be skeptical of the state, but I also think you need the state in some ways. Uh, you know, I think that decentralization often goes to people who are busybodies who tend to be more often than not progressive, tend to be activists more often than not. I mean, you look at who is who is most likely to be active in their community, who's most likely to be on social media. Yes, I, li- I want a model of localized theocracy. You want the crown defending individual rights. I think I think is the. Difference. I just think localization will empower activists and. Also, I'm not a huge, I'm obviously not a huge theocracy fan either, um, but I think that, uh, yeah, and, and maybe in the, you know. Yeah, I look, know I mean, like part of it, San Francisco will be taken over by the loons. I don't think you're going to fix San Francisco. I, I just think it's, you know, this everywhere else in the country, Idaho yeah. and Nevada can, can be different under the decentralized model. That, that would be the hope. Well, it depends. Yeah, okay, but at some level of power, there will be. You know, if it's the state of Idaho now, they're they're telling Boise State University to get rid of critical race theory. That is, you know, that's a model of what I what I would hope for. I mean, although I just don't see why you couldn't have that occurring federally and, and, and nationally. I'm, I'm not as much of a decentralizer. I think that I don't see why someone has to be brainwashed if they happen to live in California and they have no way out. I would rather a situation where they could stay in California and not be brainwashed than have to flee California. Uh, I, I just think that, so I may be well, less enamored of like, Actually, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that I think federalizing the issue and making the culture war more um, distinct will probably increase polarization or will probably make you more likely to be brainwashed in California. In California, you know, I think if Trump never came along and sort of polarized uh, people, I think I don't think the wokeness would have actually gone as far as it did. I still I don't think Trump. I can't blame Trump for you know I'm not going to blame Trump for everything that happened in the last five years, um, but. I, I do see that you do see the process where each side, you know, radicalizes the other. And if we had more of a, you know, live and love, live philosophy, you maybe would be brainwashed in California, but they, you know, people in California maybe wouldn't be so hyper to prove how woke they are given the, you know, the fascism that's going on in Washington, that, that that's a figment of their imagination, of course, but you know, that, that stuff would get hyped up, you know, uh, if, if you, you know, if you put this stuff, at the political forefront. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to disagree with you. I think this left modernism has its own uh, internal momentum that drives it. And, you know, in Britain, say Britain or Canada, which haven't had a Trump, you know, you see the um, march, the onward march of this ideology. This onward march of this ideology has its own momentum. It's a utopian, chiliastic, millenarian creed, and it's constantly having to innovate. It's, It's like fundamentalist Christianity or any any religion, it has to constantly be innovating to stay vital and fresh. And no, this would have happened regardless of Trump. I don't think Trump Trump might have accelerated it to some degree, but I don't think it's it's the reason that we're seeing it. And his departure will not end it either. Um, people are going to sh- you know, form their own opinions of whatever they want to call white supremacy or or whatever they want to call Trump supporters based on you know complete hyperbole and moral panic and and yes there are a few nutcases and we know trump himself of course 
in many ways, extremely unhelpful. You know, he, he lied a lot. He was uh, ineffective. He, he, you know, broke a whole bunch of norms. So I think he was in many ways terrible. Um, uh, but I do think he, you know, I do think he pointed to certain issues that needed to be addressed as well. Um, but I just don't see how decentralization is, is, is really necessary. I mean, I don't think that's the answer. I mean, ultimately, I think you need to, there are certain parts of society that are just more powerful that are going to shape the narrative and you have to fight for them. I don't think you can just sit there and say, okay, we'll control Arkansas. And, you know, I, I think that that's a strategy for failure. It's not to say I, I'm against decentralization to some degree, but I just think that you have to make the argument and make the argument in these elite institutions. Um, otherwise, I think, I mean, they have the power and the resources. That matters, ultimately, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think for any kind of conservatism or any kind of move away from this left modernism, as you call it, I, I think that ultimately um, universities are going to be liberal because I think the kind of job where, where you go for this, where you where you're basically shuffling paper paper around um, and you're sitting just, you know, you're getting your status from, uh, you know, looking at each other's papers, reviewing them, um, not producing anything concrete. I tend to think that that is inherently liberal. I think the people who go into that inherently are into status signaling and, you know, not into um, having theories or doing things that have any connection with reality. Um, so, you know, like, you, you know, how did the left take over these institutions? It wasn't like the Kennedy administration had a plan, right? It was just sort of, there was this sorting into different kind of jobs. And, you know, eventually journalism and uh, academia just became very, very um, left wing. And uh, journalism is a little bit more confusing case. But I, you know, I think that as public, you know, as education expanded and more people went to college, it became an, a marker of elitism, but it became less elite. So it was like, if only like the top 5% went to college, it was an elite thing. And, you know, these people, you know, distinguished themselves as like a real elite. But when it became sort of like a mass elite thing, when it became, you know, 35 to 40 percent of the people going to college, and most of those people don't have brains to do um, real academic work, um, I think it became just, you know, the, you know, the people at the, you know, with the uh, 60th percentile IQ wanting to feel better than the people with the 45th percentile IQ. And that's sort of what college is at this point. And, you know, I, you know, and I, I just think that, you know, granting these institutions, let me ask it this way. Do you think there's, there's, um, there's nothing you can do politically or socially or culturally to make uh, universities less influential in society? I I don't think there isn't a whole lot. I mean, they, they have some influence. I, mean, I think a lot of the influence is it runs through popular culture, publishing, Hollywood, celebrity, etc. That's how it that's what shapes sort of younger generations, which is one of the reasons why they are more culturally to the left um, dramatically. So and this is the other looming crisis. I mean, if you want to talk about looming crisis, I mean, you, if you look at the kind of uh, opinion of younger people. I mean, they are massively more left-wing voting. Now, they've always been to some degree, um, but not as much as what we're seeing now. And so I think that's also another challenge that if the right doesn't get serious about the meaning-making centers of society and about altering that landscape, they're going to get clobbered down the road. Now, that's down the road, but I think that it's not enough to just say we're going to cut, ta give you lower taxes. I mean, that's not it's just not going to make it. I think ultimately the new political divisions are much more open, closed on culture. 
And the left is, is simply owning the status elite, is owning the, the sort of credentialing process, the, the status making. It's a bit like there's, it's, you know, fashions like, I don't know what, Doc Martin boots or whatever it is that starts off with an elite avant-garde and it filters down to the masses. Yeah, the I mean, I'm, I'm, not philosoph- yeah, I'm not philosophically, you know, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, this is not starting from philosophical place. I have practical um uh, questions about you know the the model you you know particularly well, apply to the United States. Um, well, let me yeah, let uh, me just make one other point, by the way, Richard, which is that there is one model that said that you know people who study theory all day were always left wing and they were only one percent of the population, and now it's like fifty percent, or, or now they're a much larger share, and that's why society is more liberal. Poking around for what I can see, actually, if you were to look at PhD. Uh, people with a PhD in Britain who are age 65 compared to age 30, I mean, it's a massive difference in voting, a massive difference in ideology. Yeah. You look at these professions like journalism and academia, it was like maybe one and a half to one yeah. left to right in like 1970 or 1960. And it's now, you know, five, six plus to one. Um, and, and that's including all universities and all disciplines. If you do, if you just took the social sciences and hu- humanities, it's gone from like three to one to 12, 13 to one. So it's that there's it's not just that there's been a, a structural these structural shifts. The people that were studying theory and doing useless things, as you put it, were just a lot more centrist in yeah. the sixties. So I think we got to get at this cultural drift well, I, I, well, and deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I don't I don't doubt that, and I know historically there have been a lot of philosophers and academics who were who were right wing and conservative. I I think that there is a different person who becomes a say a philosopher or a phd when that's one percent of the population versus one that's 20 percent of the population i think the, the the circle that you're competing with the circle of phds becomes significantly dumber and in that case um you know the you sort of go to a lowest common denominator within that community so i actually i do have a you know a theory a theory for that i think <laughs> i think if i think if like we had if we had a meritocratic meritocratic system where it was all like singaporean model where only like 15 people got to be philosophers I think you you maybe have a mix of crazy leftists and you probably have some crazy rightists. I mean, look at Silicon Valley, like CEOs. Like once you get up to like you know uh, the really successful level, there's a lot more balance than there is at the at the lower level. Uh, but you know, anyways, putting that uh, putting that aside, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I yeah, I love this debate, and I, I have to say, yeah, the, what I was going to say about the um, the practical the practical difficulties I have with yours with your uh, model. You know, I think when you have a centralized system, uh, Scott Alexander, I recommend everyone go read Scott Alexander's blog. Read everything, read out the whole blog. But there was one on a book review on uh, Recep Erdogan and what he was doing in Turkey. And they were having, you know, coups, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, every few decades because the country was becoming too Islamist. And he talks about how Erdogan actually goes through the method of actually um, purging, you know, the institutions, going into, you know, u- uh, education and all this other stuff. Part of it involved, you know, um, transferring uh, prestige from some university. The other part, part of it had putting your own people there. If you look at something like what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, I think that model can work in centralized systems. Um, and you know, putting aside the morality, let's just—we're uh, just talking practicality here. Um, I think that can work in the American system, where it's—it's it's already decentralized, right? It's decentralized in the sense that the president can't just say, "This is what you're going to teach at the University of Iowa or whatever," right? So it's going to be there's going to be so much discretion uh, to these um, uh, to these institutions, and if if if, if it's the, if any discretion is left to the institutions, then it's a war of attrition. Who has more busybodies? 
And at this particular point in history, you know, you could put a one uh, free speech champion at a university. He's going to be outnumbered 100 to one. And, you know, they're not going to say, and you know what's going to happen, Eric, they're not going to say, you know, we discriminate against Trump supporters. They're going to say everything this person says is discredited or it's racist. And this is the, you know, this is the consensus of the field. It's not, it's not political discrimination. And you just don't have the bodies for a battle of the bulge of bureaucrats if you're the right. That's just not a battle you could win. So, yeah. So, so how do you envision, you know, this sort of practically? Uh, I don't actually. Well, I don't actually think you would need to 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 outnumber them in the institution. So if you look at, say, the battle over history teaching, I mean, if you go back to the 90s and you look at the and again, this is not because I support these people, but if you look at the Christian right uh, battles, they were they were taking over local school boards and school districts. Um, but it, it's that sort of level of activism in order to control, you know, at state level or even local level. I do think it's possible to, because ultimately you have to start fighting for what version of history is going to be taught. Is it going to be 1619 or 1776, for example? You don't actually necessarily need tons and tons of apparatchiks. You, and that you would just need to have some people, you would have mon- some monitoring system. So you could... I'm convinced you could monitor the output of something like the BBC. You could monitor, uh, you know, if you're monitoring race and gender, you can monitor politics and ideology. And and I don't think it is any more intrusive to monitor the second than it is the first. And all of a sudden you can simply haul them up on these metrics and, you know, they can game it to some extent, but it's a bit like affirmative action. If you get rid of affirmative action at the university of California, they can try and get around it, but actually it's going to have a big effect. And similarly right now, I think the pressure on, the BBC, the pressure on the universities is, is having an effect. It'll have an effect in the U.S. What the legislation that's in places like Iowa and South Dakota and Ar- I don't agree with their approach in, in in some ways, but in other ways it is effective. Um, you know, Boise State no longer you know it's just mothballed. It's it's introductory, mandatory, critical you know diversity. Yeah course, which has this critical race theory. And I mean, you can drive all this stuff out. And I think Rufo's approach is the right approach that you can get parents and you you can actually get bureaucrats um, to do this. And and so I think it's not been tried. I mean, here's the thing. If it had been tried and failed, I might say, okay. In fact, the right has just shied away and been a rule taker on culture from the left for a long, long time. They actually need to get much more serious and principled and strategic and need to go after everything from history teaching to uh, the content of what's being taught to, to the content of what's being broadcasted in state controlled environments and institutions. Now, I'm not saying abridge academic freedom. That's not what I'm saying. I think, but what I am saying is you can put pressure on institutions uh, who you can say, look, if you're so worried about race and gender diversity, I want you to be just as worried about political. Those two have to be equally prioritized. And if one falls out of whack, then you're either going to be fined or you're going to be forced to make those two things equally prioritized. And the point here is that with that crackdown on political uh, discrimination and the the absence of viewpoint diversity, the use of fairness doctrines, all of these sorts of things are going to be necessary in order to, and I think that would be enough. I don't think you have to have as many people as they do. You just have to constantly be shaming them against these metrics. Now, I want to see that tried uh, and see what happens because right, they're going to say, ooh, violation of institutional autonomy. Ooh, that's draconian. Well, no, it's it's no more draconian than pushing um, racial and gender diversity, right? So if you're going to push that 
and, and I'm not a hundred, you know, I think I'm not a hundred percent opposed to this idea that there is some virtue in institutions reflecting the wider society. Uh, yes, merit is number one, but at the same time, you can have, I think, some uh, attention being paid to to representation. Now, not a hundred percent, but I, I think these levers can be used much, much more effectively. And I just don't think. This idea that a market model laissez-faire, it's not, it's just a recipe for letting the woke take over. That's all it is. It's being a useful idiot, I think, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think that's all it is. Is it, The people who are libertarian in this debate are in many ways the useful idiots of the woke. Because the, what the woke want is no interference so that they can just take over and maintain the fee. No, the woke, the woke want our tax dollars. <laughs> that's what the woke yeah, want. Exactly. And if you just, I mean, you stop giving them your tax dollars, that's, I mean, that's that's just a... But that's know, never going to happen. Right? Like, you're talking about a utopia. I mean, well, I think, no, I think I think reforming these universities is the utopia. I think cutting spending on stuff is, you know, a simple thing that you could do. Constantly monitoring and having the bodies to do that and ultimately affecting the institutions. I think that... That I think that has a lot more unintended consequences. That's a lot harder to do, and it makes a lot more assumptions about you know the competence to carry this out. Yeah, I think the right has to develop that competence. There are people; they have to get their people trained up and into these positions in a serious way. They've more or less left all these quangos and bodies to the left. They are not in Britain now. The last couple of years, government has changed. They're no longer. I mean, the, the last crop of even conservatives were more or less running scared of the, the left in, in culture, just kowtowing to them. The university's ministers were just wanting to be chummy with the universities, and they were only talking about the economic benefits and whatever, which are considerable. But essentially, you cannot take an economic laissez-faire approach, a 1980s approach to this problem. This is a cultural problem which requires a cultural strategy, which ultimately means trying to go after the centers of power and, and, and wealth. And you're not going to get... You, you can cut money to some universities and some of the lower ranked ones may fall out. Those bottom feeders, they're not going to shape the culture. The ones shaping the culture are the top hundred. Uh, you have to somehow reach those top hundred who create the status system in your society or else if they set the tone of the status system, they're going to win. And, and you actually have to somehow start to interrupt that and disrupt it and point out the authoritarianism, the discrimination, all of the things that they're doing and they're pretending they're not doing, you actually have to kind of expose that and show that I really, actually, this is a skewed bubble that is doing skewed research. And, and I just don't think it's enough to think that some sort of market model is going to lead to creative destruction and the good driving out the bad, maybe in 200 years. No, I, I, I don't think, I, yeah, I, no, I don't think it's going to drive out the bat. I think just the conservatives will be able to breathe under that model because I think the, the question is, will you get crushed completely or not? I, I don't have a hope of, of anything better than that. I have, I have low expectations, I think is, is the, you know, I just want to, I just want to save Idaho. That's, that's all, that's all I feel like it's possible. Right. <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I shouldn't portray, I mean, I think that it's not exactly right that I'm just, you know, sort of libertarian, more libertarian model and you're uh, more interventionist. You know, and, and some ways, you know, you you are less interventionist than me because I would be. I mean, I would be comfortable saying tax dollars are just not going to go to something that's uh, scientifically valid. So, if you want to have a women's studies department that denies biology, um, okay, like you could do that in your privacy of your own home, right? But I, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I'm not a laissez. I'm not a laissez-faire person in the sense that I want to leave these institutions alone. I think that there's no reason tax dollars should go to. Why should tax dollars go to that any more than it should go to astrology or um, 
or you know witchcraft or or, or whatever. What's what, what's the argument against against going even harder than you want to go at these institutions? Well, I, I guess I'm even though I want to go at these institutions, I I guess I I am a believer ultimately in academic freedom, and and the people who are benefiting from that the most are going to be the political minorities, say conservatives or gender critical feminists. In any case, so I just I think telling people what they can and cannot teach is is just an approach which could lead to a lot of abuse. I, I think I what I'd rather see, I would rather go in with a principled academic freedom defense, which would um, defend against all of the attempts to no platform and cancel, which are being used by radicals throughout these issues. So what I want to do is defend uh, academic freedom as the core principle, but then start to work on the political diversity via these uh, the, the, the requirement to be politically neutral via the, this equivalence between um, racial and gender diversity and political diversity and, and use those levers. Because ultimately, you want to get into the top 100 institutions. It's not enough to see a few of the bottom thousand cut. I don't think I don't think that does anything. And the other thing is people are going to study what they want to study, well, even if they yeah. if they put it under the label of sociology, but they study gen- I mean, you're not going to be able to control that. And I don't think that's the aim. I think that the... The aim has to be um, to try and sort of reduce chilling effects, reduce discrimination effects, reduce the ability of these institutions to reproduce their progressive community of coercion where they're coercing dissenters out of that system. You have to break down the coercive mechanisms so they can't um, continue to enforce conformity any longer. Yeah. Yeah. And then you sort of move them back because, and I guess ultimately I'm also a believer in, in, culture as an independent variable uh, in social change. And I, I don't think it's about just about things like who's smarter and who's not, you know, and then the, the institutional makeup. I think you have to try and shift the culture. Now, the, the thing is in the media, the you know intellectual dark web, I mean, there's no question that I think that the wokeness is kind of a, a joke in much of the media. I know you've got the New York Times and a few other places that are pushing this stuff. But I still think if you were to take the whole media space, I I think the skeptics are doing pretty well, but it's just how do you crack into the institutions and push back on this coercion against uh, heterodoxy and dissent? I think that is really the sticking point, is getting inside the institutions. It's where I agree with Rufo. I think you've got to start using uh, legislative mechanisms and policy to try and crack these institutions but you need to do it in a principled way. And that's why I think academic freedom has to be the sort of bedrock. And then the second principle is around political discrimination and political diversity. Uh, and I think if you use those two, you will get to a situation which is as good as it can be, I think. Um, and part of this is also, it may involve a battle. So, so part of this will be, there will be a political battle with the establishment in these institutions where they they are essentially shown up and, and, and defeated where they can be defeated and embarrassed where they can be embarrassed. Uh, you know, Trump, what Trump was doing on to Princeton and saying that, oh, okay, you guys, you've said you're systemically racist. Okay, you violated, you know, things like that, of that nature, but in a much more systematic way where you really constantly embarrass you know what I, you know the what I, unreason that they're peddling, right? Yeah. So Tammy Duckworth is a, a half-tie um, half-white uh, senator from Illinois. And I don't know if you heard about this, but she said she would not vote for any Biden cabinet picks until an AAPI 
person was uh, added. But she would vote for diverse. Oh, she would vote for diversity picks. Um, and so she won't vote for any white men or the way she said, it sounds like not white women either, but an LGBT or a racial minority she'll vote for, but she won't vote for any more white people. And Tom Cotton, a Senator from Arkansas that most of our uh, listeners will know said something like, this is terrible. That's all he tweeted. Like, this is terrible. Imagine if a Republican did this on the other side. And I said, you know, why don't you like, just say that, um, to balance out this racism that Tammy Duckworth is doing, we'll vote the opposite of what she's going to vote on everyone. We'll have the opposite standard, right? Um, there was another senator who went along with her, uh, Hirono from uh, uh, Hawaii. Um, and yeah, I think yeah, I think you're, I think you're right that, you know, we we've disagreed a lot, um, but <laughs> I think we are thinking about these issues, and I think the danger, the the thing that I see on the right is a lot of signaling not a lot of thought uh, about what to do about it. And people who are just happy to raise money and uh, stay in office and get people excited over this stuff. And I think there should be a norm. If anyone who cares about cancel culture, if a politician talks about it, but doesn't offer a solution, they should be shamed. Like you should, they should be attacked for that. That should be a, a seen as a shameful thing to do. There was a, uh, Ramesh Pranernu, who's a writer for the National Review, is a conservative pundit, uh, had an interview with Tom Cotton. And he was still later talking about, uh, about it with Ezra Klein on a Klein's own podcast. And he was saying, you know, he said, he said, I said to Cotton, um, you know, you say cancel culture is so bad, this and that. Um, what do you have to do about it? And he's like, he said, and Cotton really didn't have an answer. And I was like, you know, and that should just be shameful. People should not just be able to get away with that. Um, so I think well, we agree on that point. Yeah, we well, we agree. About. I I think we agree on the ineffectiveness. And and yeah. I mean, I guess I'll still take somebody having a go at cancel culture over someone not having a go at cancel culture. They just don't know what to do. And I think if you look at the state level action on universities, I also think that's been a bit scattergun. Yeah. It's not been guided by. So, for example, I think you get conservative politicians who will do things like want to impose the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which goes beyond the letter of the law. And so is de facto a kind of speech code. At the same time, they're trying to get rid of speech codes. And I think it's that kind of inconsistency that needs to be ironed out. You need to have a, an approach that says, no, we're going to go with speech within the law as the standard. And we're going to proactively enforce that on universities. And when they violate it. They're going to be fined if they're within the state sector or, or if they're taking government money, they're going to suffer. That is sort of a kind of principled, consistent, and I think will be an effective approach, at least for dealing with the most egregious stuff. I mean, they haven't even, haven't even tackled that. So once you've got some successes under your belt, then you can move to the trickier stuff. Now, and, and critical race, you can get rid of any mandatory critical race stuff. And that's, and I don't think lawsuits are necessarily, I mean, that is one way to do it, but I, I would prefer to not do, I would prefer to have it be proactively enforced rather than require somebody to sue. I think it's more effective to be breathing down their necks because they can violate the law, like on, on speech codes are almost all violating uh, the First Amendment. Yeah. Uh, but unless someone calls you out on it, or, or let's say the courts will then say, oh, you've got to rewrite that. And so they rewrite it in a different form and it's still non-compliant, yeah. or they change it a few years later. You actually have to have an active office that is really right on top of these institutions. Yeah, yeah. I think we're speaking past little, uh, each other a little yeah. bit because I, I think we're both concerned with cancel culture, with liberalism. I have a more sort of anti-schooling philosophy. 
I just think it's bad and we should invest less in education. And so that's always a concern of mine as much as, you know, cancel culture and this other stuff. So, you know, we just have different sort of uh, places we, we want to go with. Right. Society, and that's fine. And you accept sort of the universities and public education and all that as, as good things. Well, I think they've been a disaster for humanity. Um, but oh, okay. that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a, it, it, uh, that's a broader discussion, but we shouldn't completely exaggerate our difference either, because I think we would agree on a few things. I mean, I would, I would defund the diversity bureaucracy. Right. You don't need that. You can no, say that's right, yeah. we're giving money to the university. Um, you know, you can't be doubling, you know, keeping the professor's number constant. And then you've seen that chart where the bureaucracy, you know, doubles every X number of years. Um, the, the, they're, they're up to no good. I don't see what these people are doing that's valuable and why any tax dollars uh, should go to that. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, political neutrality. I was talking to uh, Philippe Lemoine on the last podcast before this one, and he was I was asking him, is it normal in France? You tell me if this is normal in the UK, but in in the US, as soon as something happens in the news, like Trump's Muslim ban or uh, some news with illegal immigrants or uh, Asian anti-Asian hate crimes, the university will put out some kind of political statement on it, and they'll be calling for political stuff to happen. And I asked Philippe, I said, does this happen in France? And he said, no, no, that would be unthinkable. And I said, well, I'm jealous. You guys are, are way ahead of us. Is the UK more like France in that regard or the US? Like, does your dean send out polit- uh, explicitly political uh, emails to everybody? I think, yeah, I th- that does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Or it's kind of hidden. It's not necessarily hidden that much, but certainly in the in the emails, our place isn't too bad. We've got a reasonably sensible um, person who runs runs the place, a vice chancellor. But in in other places, that's less the case. And and certainly, once you get down to the level of the faculty or the department, then you you do you do get some of this. So I would say it's maybe closer to the U.S. than to France. Um, well, the U.S. Def- the U.S. Yeah, is maybe really- it's intermediate, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, it's yeah. not as bad as the U.S. No, but but it's certainly not political politically neutral the way it needs to be. I mean, it's far, far from that, especially some departments, you know, they build themselves as, you know, they are explicitly uh, progressive. They are, you know, a, and, and they will have, you know, posters that say, you know, refugees welcome and all the overtly political things. Um, and, and so I think all of that, there has to be a, you know, in the UK, there's legislation that um, schools cannot indoctrinate. They have to be politically neutral. And I think that needs to come into universities in a big way. Not for the, pro- the professors need to have their academic freedom as professors, but the administrators, uh, I think, need to be under a, a civil service type oath to be politically neutral. Yeah. need to be monitored on that. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And um and yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's fine. I mean, when you say, you know, people should go to local school boards, I think that has been done to a certain extent. I mean, that was um, uh, the Christian right thing. I mean, nobody wants to be seen as, you know, they, they you know, those people had a, um, a view that, you know, that wasn't necessarily going to get you canceled. So it's much harder at the local level um, or any level to be against the um, the race stuff, but the left is obsessed with race. And I don't think conservatives have a choice. They have to, they have to stake out ground here. Um, so I, I agree with that. When you say people go to the you know, school board and you know fight critical race theory at their local communities, yeah, I'm, I'm happy if we're going to grant that there's going to be public schools and people are going to send their kids to them and uh, all that, then yeah, I mean, I'd rather prefer people do that than, than not do that. I, I right, right. They just but pay for the schools they want and then they can, they can teach whatever values they want. But you know, if that's not possible, then, then okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, you were going to say, uh, I, I mean, I just think this has to be, pulled together into a strategy that's coherent and that, you know, and there's principled. And I feel like even though it's developing right now, it's very scattergun and 
there isn't, you know, you just saw the fact you could have, I mean, Trump himself, of course, is completely seat of the pants and didn't have that strategic vision. But if you had somebody in who, um, you know, who had that strategic vision, and, and I do think that here in Britain, I think the government now has, there are people that have more of that strategic vision. You need to have a policy network that links people inside and outside government that has a plan and that sort of proceeds step by step you know, trial and error and sort of, and, and, and has to be focused on culture. I mean, the problem of the right has, has essentially been, they've been either, either because they've been scared by charges of, of racism or whatever to, to become a rule taker from the left, or because they've just been focusing on issues, which I think around the, the economy and foreign policy, where I think the freedom to, to, for maneuver is very limited in any case. And there are natural checks, I think, on how far to the left, for example, I mean, people don't want to pay endless amount of tax. There's kind of a natural check there. You don't need to con- to spend your whole movement on these issues. I, I, and I think you have to start. And the way it's been framed is that, you know, the cultural stuff that belongs to the left, you're not allowed to challenge that or you're engaging in politicization or culture war. Uh, you know, so you leave that to us, you good little boys, and you be you can worry about, you know, maybe the rate of inflation. I think that has to change, and the uh, certainly the conservative side needs to get a lot more serious about the direction of the culture and where it wants that to go, um, and not in a religious way, because I think that is is a very niche. You know, there's a certain number of people who buy into that worldview. It's it's not the way you're going to win a majority. You need to have, at the very least, you can defend reason and you know freedom, like basic things from progressive authoritarianism. You know that basic battle. Do you want freedom and reason or do you want progressive authoritarianism around this therapeutic egalitarianism? That is kind of one battle that you need to fight and you can win. So let's how about do that first. Um, Teaching of history. Okay, let's, you know, admit the warts, but, you know, let's tell a a story that is positive and uh, because the state has an incentive to do that. I'm not talking about academic historians, but at the school level, it's okay to to uh, emphasize or, or put more things in there that is positive than, than is negative. You know, just basic kind of uh, things that everybody, like 80% of the population could agree on, but they're not even fighting those. They have no strategy, it seems to me, for uh, tackling that in a systematic way. And, and, and so, yeah, this is where I think the whole um, battle has to go. But I don't know in the U.S. case, because you, you do have a lot of unreason going on. on, on <laughs> <Yeah. afraid. laughs> I just want to cut funding in part because I don't trust the right to do anything more complicated than that. Uh, that Just getting them to do anything useful, I think, will be hard enough. But um, yeah, I think part of it is we've been talking about the right, like it's just like a thing, like there's two tribes, there's the right and the left, and the right needs power, they switch the left. And so you talked about economics and foreign policy. The, 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 the thing is, if for cultural conservatives, that a lot of people who are um, high up in the Republican Party, maybe they agree with you on, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture or wokeness, um, but they don't prioritize it. So if, you, if your priority is foreign policy, and you really believe in defending Israel or fighting China or something, or if your just thing is economics, the rational thing to do is just to compromise on the go to the center on the cultural issue and then try to get your way on that other stuff you like. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to, to, it's a simplification to say, you know, the right, this, the left is this. Uh, you're saying, oh, the right has lost. No, the people who want lower corporate tax rates and um, uh, militarized foreign policy, that you know, part of the right has won 
because that's, they had the power and they, they prioritize things. And so the people who prioritize other things are going to have to um, fight those people. That's going to be the first battle to fight within that coalition to make that the priority because a, a political movement can't prioritize everything. It has to set a governing agenda and there's only so much attention you can give to things. Um, and, and one thing I have concern in the American context is the people who prioritize the cultural stuff on the right, I'm not impressed with their, you know, intelligence or organizational skills, even when I agree with them. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, and I think part of what we do as CSPI is, you know, bring, um, you know, bring smart people who care about the issues and where the culture is going together and inspire other smart people to care about these things. And maybe those people go into academia, they go into politics, they go into journalism, whatever, and they make a difference. I just think we're at the point we're at right now, you know, the, the better people are on the culture, I'm sorry, the, the, the relationship between that and IQ tends to be, tends to be inverse as, as far as I can see for most of uh, most politicians. And that's just unfortunate. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't know anything about IQ, but I, I just think the, you're right. I mean, the, I mean, the whole, you know, Trump was in a way um, the, emer the, you know, the return of the repressed, if you like, the kind of emergence of these cultural questions into Republican politics. And the never Trump neocon sort of Cold War version of, of Republicanism is, is now been on the out. I think that should have happened a long time ago. Uh, yeah. But then again, I'm probably, you know, more to the left on the, on the economic stuff anyway. So I don't particularly care for super low tax anyway. But I, what I would say is the, you know, it seems that the shift uh, away from the kind of fusionist republicanism towards the more populist republicanism is, is the first step that needed to happen. Now what you need is to have, and I just saw J.D. Vance was throwing his hat in the ring as a senator for Ohio, but, you know, what you need next is to have somebody who has got some smarts, as you say, who, who is more strategic uh, to come in and turn this into a to make this the priority, I think. And, and I think it can happen. I think it's actually happening more in Europe than it is in the US because somehow that, that sort of low tax republicanism, you know, there's such an article of faith in the, the, the free market sort of article of faith in the Senate, for example, and, and in, other, in the think tanks. And I think it is kind of a, has more of a stranglehold as does the neocon stuff. Now I think it's fading and it's moving, but. You know, if you look at Trump, he didn't do anything on infrastructure, for example. I mean, he, I guess I would, I'm sort of somebody who would say, well, why not move a little bit more to the center in some ways on, on the economy and push right on culture? Yeah. That would be sort of a winning be, combination. I think that would be political. Yeah, I think I would, that would be political, politically smart. Um, you know, the problem, the U.S., I think problems go much deeper. We can't do infrastructure. If you look at the costs that we have when we try to do something basic, it's, you know, in this country, it's flushing money down the toilet. We really have cross disease. We have some deep problems, but, uh, you know, that's a, that's a different issue. And then Trump and sort of where the Republican Party is going is also an interesting issue. I agree. I disagree. <laughs> I think, I think people can exaggerate how much Trump changed things. I think it's more continuity than change while the rhetoric changed quite a bit. The uh, policies tended to say the same, but, you know, we've, um, I think I've taken enough, enough of your time this, this afternoon. So uh, we'll save that for an, another discussion. Um, yeah, Eric, I mean, this was great. I mean, I think people are going to listen to this and I think people are going to benefit from it, particularly because we didn't, we didn't agree on much. 
um, right. but, it's, but, it's, but it's a fascinating discussion and one that people uh, should be having. So yeah, I mean, read again, once again, read Eric's report at uh, cspicenter.org. He also has an article in City Journal where he talks about the uh, what the UK is doing and what um, you know what he thinks what he thinks is good about that policy and some as some commentary on American politics. And um, yeah, any, anything else you wanna you wanna tell the listeners before we go? Um, no, not really, Richard. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with uh, CSPI. Um, you know, we've now had a, a number of reports uh, out and I think it's, it's starting to make an impact for, for such a new uh, entity. I think that that bodes really well. I'm just happy to be a part of it all. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're glad to have you. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, the feedback I've been getting young people, you know, in undergrads or in grad school saying, oh, this is awesome. This is, you know, this is, um, I've been looking for something like this, you know, we're really f- filling a niche. So, you know, appreciate everyone who's donated, who's followed our work. I appreciate it. And uh, until next time, take care, Eric. All right. Take care, Richard.